Let's pray. Our Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, open our eyes as we hear your word now. Transform our minds, renew our hearts, enable us to live lives for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder uh, if any of you have ever had a near-death experience. I'm sure some of you have. Uh, I'm not sure I've come too close to death. The time I can think of, I was uh, caving up at Chilligo in North Queensland uh, with some friends, and we were abseiling into a a massive cave. It was a 30-metre abseil just vertically uh, down into this massive cave. And as I was going over the edge, the, the rocks around the, the lip of this cave were, were limestone and they were like razor blades. There were these ridges of rock. And we had a thick rubber mat over the lip uh, so that the rope wouldn't slice on those, uh, those razor-sharp uh, rock edges. But as I was going over the edge, the rope slipped off the rubber mat straight onto this knife blade and I'm hanging 30 metres above the bottom. (laughs) And I wasn't too worried initially until I saw the look on the faces of our caving guides. (laughs) The experts were panicking. They were not excited by what they saw. And so they were frantically trying to pull the rope up back onto this rubber mat, Uh, but with 80 kilos of me on the line, they weren't able to... And I tell you what, I was never so thankful to touch ground again. I made it safely down, the rope didn't get severed. But when you have a dice with death, well, you come to appreciate life more, don't you? If you've faced death yourself, you'll have a renewed appreciation for the life that you have. You'll see things as better after facing death. Well, this morning, as we take a look at that uh, passage that Jeff just read for us from Ephesians 2, Paul's addressing an audience of people who have survived their own near-death experience. And he wants them to appreciate the life that they have now. And so first, he sets out to remind them of how close they were to death. You see, it's no good uh, to... You won't appreciate life unless you realise how close you were to death. And so a few weeks ago, we saw Paul began this letter to the Ephesians, praising God for giving his children every spiritual blessing in and through Jesus. He continued last week by praying that the Ephesians would have their eyes open to comprehend just how huge these blessings are. But now as we enter chapter 2, Paul wants to remind the Ephesians of what life was like before they knew Jesus. What was life like before they received every spiritual blessing in Christ? And he sums up their lives before they knew Jesus in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Before the Ephesians knew Jesus, while they were still living with their sins unforgiven, they were dead, says Paul. Not just a bit sick. Not just a bit lost, dead. Now, obviously, they weren't physically dead. He says in verse 2 that they were dead in the sins in which they used to live. 
So they weren't physically dead, they were physically alive, but they were the living dead. They were alive. They looked alive. They were probably enjoying life. They may have been perfectly healthy and happy. You would have seen them fishing down in the river. You would have seen them surfing down at Noosa Heads. You would have seen them at the golf club. They were alive, but on the inside, they were dead because of sin. And Paul describes uh, why they were dead in verses 2 and 3. And he describes it in three different ways. Take a look. He says, firstly, they were dead because they were following the ways of the world. They were living for the things that our world says are important. Secondly, he says they were dead because they were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Uh, Here Paul is referring to Satan. It's quite a long title for Satan, but he calls him ruler of the kingdom of the air because Satan's power is like that of air. See, on the one hand, Satan's power is inescapable. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe. But on the other hand, it lacks substance. There's nothing there. See, Satan's power is real. It's a real force for us to reckon with. But at the same time, well, there's, there's nothing to it. It's, it's empty. We know a greater power. Paul also describes Satan as the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. And here I think it's worth noticing that Satan only works in willing subjects. You see, we can't blame Satan for our sin. He works in those who are disobedient. He helps those who willingly sin. So the Ephesians were dead because they were following the ways of the world. They were dead because they were following Satan. Well, thirdly, in verse 3, we see that they were dead because they were following their own selfish cravings, the desires of the flesh. Now, all three of these things contribute to our sin. It is a real struggle for us because we're not only up against ourselves, our sinful cravings of the flesh, we're not only up against our world, we're also up against Satan. We're up against all three of these things. And so the question for us this morning is, who are you following? Are you listening to what the world around you says? Are you allowing the world's attitudes to shape your own beliefs? Maybe in areas of wealth, the people around you will say certain things are important. Have you believed them? Have you bought into the world's lies? Are you allowing Satan to influence your behaviour? This is probably far less obvious, but perhaps you're tempted to believe the lies that God is not good. That's the lie that the devil tempted Eve with in Genesis, wasn't it? Are you tempted to believe that God is not good or that God's word is not true? Or are you simply following your own sinful cravings? Do you make decisions based on what God says is good or do you base decisions just on what you feel like? on what makes you feel good. Who are you following? 
Well, whether we're following the world, the flesh, or the devil, or all three, the end result is the same. Take a look at verse 3. Because like the rest, that is like everyone else in the entire world, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Just let that sink in for a moment. We were deserving of God's wrath. Because of our sin, we were lined up to face an angry God. Now, our world doesn't much like the idea of an angry God. In fact, many Christians have tried to distance themselves from an angry God because God is love, right? God is good. But we need to see that if God is good, if God is loving, then he has to judge sin. If he didn't judge sin, if he wasn't angry at our disobedience, then he would not be good. He would not be loving. It would be unfair if God let sin go unpunished. Now that's hard to swallow, but think about the evils of this world. If God were able, and if he simply decided to turn a blind eye to sin and the evil of this world, if he was able to do something about it, but he chose not to, that God would not be good. Would it have been fair for God to allow the genocide of the Jews in Nazi Germany without bringing justice? If God saw it, if he was able to do something about it, and he said, that's okay. Would that be a good God? No. God would not be good if he could see the sex trafficking going on in the Philippines today without holding perpetrators to account. God would not be good And in the same way, it would be unfair of God to allow your sin to go unpunished too. For the hurt that you cause others, for the wounds that you've inflicted on other people, God must hold you to account. And they might seem like small things to you. They might even seem like small things to those that you've hurt. But to God, who is holy and perfect and pure, they are wicked and they deserve punishment. And most of all, well, we're all guilty of one sin in particular, and that is of rejecting God. We've inflicted wounds on those around us, but we have inflicted a far greater wound on our God by rejecting his authority, by telling the God who created us that we don't want him. We are all guilty and it is good that God judges sin. It is fair that God judges sin. And the wages of sin is death. For God to be good, for God to be fair, the only punishment suitable for our constant rebellion against the life giver is death. Now, we should find that hard to swallow. If you're feeling uncomfortable at that idea, well, welcome to the club. It doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, how could small things like lust or anger or trying uh, or greed or lying, how could those things deserve so great a punishment? I mean, if someone lies to me, I might not like it, but I certainly don't want them to die. 
But the Bible is clear that all sin, little as it may seem, all sin is a rejection of God's authority. When we sin, we are effectively telling the one who gives us life and breath and everything that we don't want him anymore. And so our perfectly fair God gives us exactly what we ask him for. He allows us to cut ourselves off from the source of life. He lets us go our own way, but our own way leads to death. Now, it's unpleasant for us to think about, but we need to be reminded that our sin deserves death. It's important for us to see that we are all dead in sin. We all deserve to face God's righteous anger at sin. And the punishment that we all deserve is death. We need to remember that. We need to know it because it's only then that we can appreciate what God did for us in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Do you see that? You were dead in your sins, but God. You wanted nothing to do with God, but God. You should be facing eternal death under God's good and perfect justice, but God, because of his great love for you, made you alive with Jesus. You see, God was too loving, too kind, too merciful to let you face the punishment that you deserve. He loved you too much to let you suffer like that. And so he did whatever needed to be done to spare you. He went so far as to die in your place. He stepped down onto this earth as a man, Jesus Christ, and died for your sin. You deserved wrath. He took it. You deserved death. He died instead. But then God raised Jesus to life, didn't he? And here in verse 4, Paul tells us that by raising Jesus to life, God has raised you who are dead in sin to life too. He's given you new life. Remember, it's not just that you were sick. No, 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 you weren't sick and you got better. You weren't lost and then you found your way. No, you were dead, stone cold dead. But God breathed life into you once again. We need to appreciate that. We need to know that we were dead because it's then that we'll appreciate the life that we have. Well, Paul tells us in verse 6 that, well, we didn't just rise with Jesus. In verse 6, Paul tells us that God raises us from death to life and then raises us even further as he seats us with Jesus in heaven. He saves us a seat at the table and it's got your name on it. It's guaranteed. And in fact, it's so secure, so certain that Paul speaks of it as if it's happened right now. Do you see that? He writes this in the present tense. He doesn't say one day God will raise you to heaven. He says God 
has raised you already. It's like you're already there with him now. Now, obviously, we're not experiencing that right now. It will be in the future when we get to experience that reality. But Paul's point here is that God's already done everything needed for this to happen. It's a done deal. You are secure. You are seated with, heaven, with Jesus in heaven now. Well, one day, says Paul in verse 7, when we finally get to experience this reality, when we get to sit with Jesus in heaven, well, it's then that we'll see clearly the incomparable riches of his grace. It's then that our eyes will be fully opened. It's then that the scales will fall off and we'll see just how good God has been to us. Right now, we can get a glimpse, but then we will see it clearly. So friends, if you're a Christian here today, you need to know that you were once dead in sin. Like a stone, cold, dead. You had nothing going for you. There's nothing good about a dead person, is there? You looked bad, you smelt bad, you couldn't do anything about it. You were dead. Death was where you were heading. And that's exactly where you deserved to head. It's exactly where I deserved to head. But God. But God, because of his great love. But God, who is rich in mercy. But God made you alive with Christ. You've been resurrected like Jesus was. God loved you so much that he brought you back from the dead. He gave you new life. I hope you can appreciate just how big a transformation this is. See, this isn't a little makeover. This is radical transformation. And I think so often we can, we can put Christianity in the same basket as yoga or a diet or a self-help book. See, we can treat the gospel as something that just improves our life a little bit. We think of reading the Bible as a good way to learn some morals. Or we can think of following Jesus as helping us to be a little bit more loving and empathetic. I think that's the way our society views the church, don't they? They see it as a take-it-or-leave-it sort of thing. It's an add-on to life. Well, you've chosen the church add-on. I chose surfing. I chose golf. You, that works for you. I prefer to volunteer at the soup kitchen. I prefer meditation. You see, our world sees Christianity as this small self-improvement thing. When we see here, the gospel is not self-improvement. It's something else entirely. It's in a category of its own. This isn't self-improvement. This isn't a makeover. This is resurrection. This is the dead being given new life. We have a new lease on life. And so the question is, what do we do with it? You know, when someone has a near-death experience or when they've come out of some some tragedy, often their lives are changed. They'll live new lives. You think about people who have survived cancer and often they'll spend the rest of their life devoting their time and their energy and money to helping other people to beat cancer. 
You'll see, so, see people who have survived war and conflict in other countries and then they'll dedicate the rest of their lives to helping to end conflict. But what do we do? We were dead, now we're alive. What do we do about it? Well, have a look at verses 8 to 10. Because firstly, Paul wants us to be very clear about who's responsible for all this. He said it in verse 5. He repeats himself in verse 8. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. And the reason he says it twice is because we're really good at forgetting that. We're really good about thinking about Christianity, about religion, as a matter of us doing good things to please God. We'll do our religious duty, we'll go to church, we'll get baptised, we'll volunteer. We'll do social work, we'll care for the poor and needy. Or maybe it'll just be in our kind of interactions with with other people in our lives. We'll be more kind, more loving, more caring towards others. Now, all of these are good things, but Paul wants to make it very clear that none of that, nothing at all that you do, will earn this salvation that he's spoken of. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, he wants to be really clear here. This is not you. You didn't do this. Remember, you were dead. You claiming credit for your own salvation, you claiming credit for being a Christian, it's like Donald Trump claiming credit for the COVID vaccine. You didn't do anything. Remember, you were dead, and dead people can't do anything. They can't raise themselves up. Dead people are useless. Dead people are hopeless. But God. And this life that we have now, it's a gift of God's grace. He gave it to you, even though you didn't deserve it. And he gave it to us, verse 10, so that we might live our new lives for him. Verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there's a really helpful distinction there, isn't there? We're not saved by good works. Nothing we do will earn us salvation, but we are saved for good works. In fact, Paul says we are God's good work. We're God's handiwork. We're created in Christ. Remember, not just made better or found. We're created in Christ for good works. That is our purpose. This is what God saved us to do. Now, he doesn't lavish his grace upon us for no reason. He doesn't just save you and then leave you. Now he saves you and he brings you into his family where you can live out the purpose for which he created you in the first place. To bring glory to him and to enjoy him. Now Paul's going to go on in the second half of Ephesians and he's, he's going to flesh out that, that new life element. What does it look like now to live as a Christian? So we're going we're gonna to leave that for the second half of the letter. Because right now, I want to draw out one of the implications of this passage. 
Because if this passage is true, if all of humanity is dead in sin, and if the only way for them to be spared eternal death is to accept the forgiveness offered them through God's gracious sending of Jesus, then that has to change what we do right now. If hell is real, if sin is as big a problem as Paul says it is right here, and if grace is real, if God truly is able to raise to life those who are dead in sin, then that's going to move us to action. Because the reality is that your next door neighbour is dead in his sin. Your sister is facing a Christless eternity unless her sin is forgiven. The people you work with, the friends that you have, everyone that you know will face God's wrath against their sin unless they turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Now that should make you squirm, that should make you uncomfortable, that should bring tears to your eyes. People that you love will die without Jesus. Imagine for a second that someone that you love went to have a glass of water, but in a moment of stupidity, somehow poured themselves a glass of bleach. Would you just sit there and let them drink it? I I doubt it. I hope not anyway. There's no way that we would watch someone about to drink a glass of bleach and go, oh, you know, it's their life. It's up to them. If they want to do it, then, you know, it's their, their decision. No way would any of us do that. We would stop them. You would hit that glass out of their hands. You would say, don't drink that. Well, if we, if we would stop someone that we love from doing something that's going to hurt them, how much more? Should we be doing that for something that is guaranteed to kill? Sin kills. We need to make sure people know that. We need to tell them that if they continue in sin, they will stand before God's wrath and they will face his just punishment. But that's not all we need to tell them. Because even more importantly than that, that we need to be sure that they know the solution. It's one thing for our world to know that they're dead in sin, but it's quite another thing for them to know that they can have life. They need to know that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, offers us life. He offers to make us alive with Jesus, even though we were dead and deserved to be dead. We can't stand by and let those that we love die in their sin. We must pray for them. We must speak to them. We must plead with them. We we must show them. If hell is real, we simply can't stand idly by. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. 
If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Now we can't make decisions for other people, but we can warn them and we can show them the hope that Jesus brings. Friends, sin is so great a problem that in the face of God's wrath, we were all dead. Now, we need to make sure that our friends and neighbours understand that. We need to make sure that we understand that. But as we share with them the bleak news, we can also give them hope. Because the grace of God is so huge that in the face of God's love, those sinners can live for God. Let's share that hope with our world. Let's pray. Our Father, it brings us to our knees to recognise our guilt. That before you, we were dead in sin. That we constantly ignored you, that we constantly rebelled against you, that we constantly did the opposite of what you wanted. And Lord, we recognise that the consequence of that is death. Lord, we're sorry. And we are so grateful that you, who is rich in mercy, forgave us through Jesus. We're blown away that you don't just forgive us, that you offer us new eternal life, that you've recreated us to serve you. Lord, I pray that you might help us to appreciate just how radical a transformation that is. Help us to recognise that we were dead, but now we will live forever to love and serve you. And I pray that you would help us to do that, to love and serve you with everything that we have. Lord, we grieve for those around us who don't know this hope, who don't know the forgiveness that can be theirs in Jesus. Lord, we think of those that we love. We think of those in our family. We think of those uh, that we work with. We think of our neighbours in the street. Lord, please show your mercy to them too. Please give us courage to share with them the uncomfortable news that because of their sin, they are facing a Christless eternity. But Lord, give us great boldness to share with joy the hope that they can have if they will turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Lord, give us great courage in this But Lord, we pray that you, the one who can soften hard hearts, you that can shine light into darkness, you who can raise the dead, might do that, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.